Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture, and the audio companion to Forma Journal, I'm Heidi White, and I am here today with Junius Johnson. Junius, thank you for being here. I'm really excited about this conversation. Let me tell my our listeners a little bit about you. Junius works in historical and systematic theology. He's got special interests in Trinitarian theology, Christology, metaphysics, and the Eucharist. He's especially interested in the medieval period on the works of St. Bonaventure, I really need to get you in here for like 50 podcasts. This is exciting. Uh, You have a forthcoming book, The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty, um, which I'm so excited about. And then, of course, you've written many other books, Christ and Analogy, uh, Patristic and Medieval Atonement Theory, Bonaventure on the Eucharist. So some just some nice light reading, that kind of thing that you sit on the porch and drink some iced tea, right? <laughs> um, Dr. Johnson is an assistant professor of historical theology in the Honors College at Baylor University and also an adjunct research fellow at the Rivendell Institute at Yale. So uh, that is a long list of just very amazing credentials. And we will probably hit on some of those things, but I invited Dr. Johnson on here to talk to me about the movies. (laughs) So Junius, as we get started here, tell us how does that long, you know, illustrious bio of wonderful things, how can that possibly relate to something as, you know, American and mundane and apple pie as going to the movies? Well, I suppose everyone's got to have a hobby. That's right. (laughs) I found that the type of work that I do as a systematic theologian, um, which has to do with understanding the way that Christian doctrines relate to each other, um, what the necessary connections are between those things, right? So if you start pulling on this part of theology, you're going to also be affecting this other part. When you start talking about who Christ is, it's going to affect what it looks like for Christ to be the savior and vice versa. The type of work of keeping all those pieces in play and figuring out how they relate to one another and what they mean, um, that is very, very similar to the work of constructing a coherent, um, for example, fantasy universe or just a fictional narrative, um, precisely because you've got all of these various bits at play and changing one thing is going to have implications for the other. The best stories are attentive to those dynamics. So for me, um, movies, besides just being a a lifetime interest that predates my scholarly interests, um, it dovetails quite nicely with the type of thinking that I find myself doing all the time. I really love that. And this is why I wanted to talk to you about this particular topic, because at Forma, we talk about classical thought intersecting with contemporary culture. And so I could, you know, have you on to talk about Bonaventure, which I definitely want to do sometime. But I wanted to really illustrate with you a conversation about contemporary culture 
being thoughtful kinds of Christians. And I thought of you in doing this because I heard you speak twice recently at a conference we both spoke at, at the Anselm Conference in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. And you did two talks that day. You did one that was just a beautiful talk, a contemplation, reflections on beauty and suffering. And uh, it was it was very lovely and moving. And then immediately afterwards, I remember you sat on the edge of the stage and you talked to a room full of people, basically about the latest Marvel movie. <laughs> and you just led this spirited discussion about the, you know, what worked and what didn't and what you loved about it. And, and, and you talked about the Marvel universe and, and I think Star Wars and different things. And, and I, I watched kind of both of these things interact and I thought, this is classical thought for contemporary culture. And so that's why I invited you to be here today. So I wanted to ask you, and this is summer blockbuster season. Yes. Um, so what have you seen uh, and what have you loved so far? Yeah, well, with the rest of America, I have, of course, seen Endgame, uh, uh -huh. Endgame which uh, kicked off the summer season Marvelous staked out that first weekend in May, which uh, was historically actually a, used to be a Star Wars weekend uh, as the kickoff to the summer season and has held that well. So that was obviously very important for all of us. Um, the amount of money that it's made has indicated the type of cultural phenomenon that it is. Uh, I have also seen the new Disney Aladdin movie. Okay. Um, and I saw the, uh, the reboot slash reimagining of the Men in Black series, um, which is a science fiction series that I have very um, sentimental connection to from my time in college when the first movie came out. Um, and I'll be off to see Spider-Man on Sunday. Uh-huh. Yep. We've got tickets for tomorrow, our family. So, all right. So tell me, what did you, what did you love about, um, or what did you not love about some of those three things? And then I'll have some kind of some more universal questions, but let's start with the particular. How did you go see those movies? Yeah, so uh, I think Aladdin is the most interesting in this regard because, you know, one of the things that I think we're going to touch on here today, I expect that you'll be interested in talking about this, is the, um, the fact that these movies that, what makes them a blockbuster is that they're selling a lot of tickets, right? Uh -huh. And so these movies become de facto cultural touchstones because people are talking about them at the office. Um, you know, all of your friends have seen them, or if they haven't seen them, you've got to be sensitive that they may want to see them and not spoil it for them. Um, in fact, I just got back into the office today after being gone for a week, and my colleague, um, another professor, theologian in the department, came to my door as soon as he saw that I was in. And his first question for me was, well, have you seen Spider-Man yet? Um, and so these are the types of experiences that we gather around. So with that in mind, Aladdin was an interesting one for me because Aladdin was, you know, comes from that second golden age of Disney movies, Disney animated movies, which happened to coincide with my childhood. Uh, and so I grew up uh, enjoying and singing you know, all the words, there was no soundtrack and whatnot, watching these movies over and over again. Um, and these reimaginings, these live action versions of these classic animated films have been a little bit divisive uh, among my friends at least because there's a sense that, well, it's just a money grab. They, they think they can get people to come out and watch exactly the same movie again, but this time done with actors instead of with animation. Um, and they're just trying to grab more money, and that's, that's the only thing that's going on there. Um, and I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's all that's going on. I actually am a big supporter of these live-action remakes because I think that they give the movies a, a, a form that will have greater lasting power in the lives of individual moviegoers. 
I find it hard to go back as much as I loved the little mermaid. I find it hard to go back and watch the little mermaid. I watched it with my daughter recently and it just didn't hold up as well for me as I would have liked. Um, mm-hmm. these live action ones, I think have the ability to, to do that, to travel with you through your life a little bit better. That said, um, I have to say that I think that the Aladdin movie was an excellent movie in many ways. It was very fun, but uh, there were some serious problems with it. And surprisingly and most annoyingly, it was about the worst done movie that I can think of in recent years for sound design. Huh. Um, I think that they really, really messed up the sound in all departments of sound, actually, the way the orchestrations were done, um, which moved consistently away from orchestra and towards rock band. Um, and also the way the recordings were done, especially how the singers were mic'd uh, and, and mixed in there was, was really problematic. And that's very surprising and disappointing in a movie that is, at the end of the day, a musical. Right. So you're not just looking for content as you're looking, watching these, these big blockbuster movies. You're looking also for form. You're evaluating how these things are holding up in their production value. That's right, because the, the production value definitely influences the experience of the movie, right? I mean, we've all watched a TV show that we've thought, oh, this is, this is really good writing. I'm really interested in the story or the characters. But we're distracted by the fact that the acting is bad or there's not enough money to do convincing special effects or whatnot. These are the types of things that interrupt our immersion into the story. And the story's power is directly connected to how immersive we find it. Huh. Is that some of the power of a blockbuster film is that they've got more money, they can make the production value better? I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's you can the transport in a blockbuster is often more complete. I think that's one of the reasons why we, those of us who love to go and see them, love to go and see them, is we want to go somewhere else. We want to feel ourselves taken out of our lives or enter into foreign worlds or foreign stories. Um, and they have the resources at hand to make the complete illusion for that. Right. right. Well, a lot of times, I mean, I've heard several commentators say this, critics, about these big blockbuster movies, particularly something like the Marvel Universe. They say something like this. This is kind of the, uh, the new mythology for American culture. Do you agree with that? Can you comment on that? And that's an interesting claim. Um, you know, one of the things I think we've got to be careful about is um, because I've had some people complain about Endgame to me because they felt that it failed to do what it set itself out to do, which is to be a mythology. And I would want to say, well, I don't recall Marvel promising to write a new mythology for us. They're just trying to tell good stories, right? We're the ones who are trying to trying to make sense of the um, the power and connection we feel with these stories. We reach for words like mythology. I don't think that's inappropriate. I think that they do function in ways somewhat similar to how our mythology functions, but I do think that's an overblown claim. Um, partly because we tend to forget what mythology is. Yeah, right? comment on that. Tell us the difference between a good story and a mythology. Yeah, well, you know, a good story has got all the elements that you would want in terms of a, a, a deep sense of transport, uh, a sense of personal connection. The characters become real to us in such a way that we feel that we know them. We are caught up in their in their struggles. Augustine, St. Augustine actually berates himself in the Confessions for weeping over Dido in mm-hmm. the um, and he's just demonstrating what good stories have, right? It's that ability to make us 
care about what happens to these characters who don't exist, who we know don't exist, um, and whose lives therefore needn't move us, and yet we're willing to have them do so. Mythology is always something more than that. It includes that, but mythology is always, first and foremost, a way of understanding the world around us. Um, myths are the stories that we tell ourselves to give ourselves the sense that we understand the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Those are often religious. And it won't do to ignore the fact that the great classical myths are stories about the gods, and these are gods that people actually believed in and spent a great deal of their resources worshiping. Um, that means that the type of emotional and personal investment you have in it would be more like the way folks are invested in politics today than the way they're invested in movies. Huh. Um, and it won't do to forget that aspect of it. So really, when I look at our culture and I look at what is functioning as a mythology for us, I don't think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think of um, our popular understanding of science. Okay, interesting. Because science, the way that we think about science is that it, it has kind of a complete lens through which we can view reality. That's right. And we think we, we think we understand reality better than the ancient Romans did because we know how many molecules are in this sort of thing and we know how to split the atom or whatnot. And, and interestingly, most of the things that I think are true on the basis of science, my science friends would tell me that's not actually what we think. Right? Uh, so we have these stories that we tell ourselves and this grand authority to, to back them up. I don't think the Marvel Cinematic Universe provides that for us. But what it does provide that is equally powerful and that is uh, what is causing some people to ask the question whether or not they are a mythology, is it provides a way, uh, a set of stories through which we can ask the deep questions about what it means to be human, what it means to be good, what does a hero do, what do we desire, what do we value as a culture, these types of things. Okay, so this is fascinating to me. So what, you, what I think I hear you saying, and, or where my mind went to when you said that was, you know, you and I, and most, probably every human, if they're honest with themselves, are not true materialists, right? It's really hard to be a true materialist. That's right. Even if the mythology around us is telling us that we should be materialists, it's really uh-huh. hard to be. So in some ways, what I hear you saying is that these good stories that these films give us is an antidote for the, the depraved mythology of our time. Is that some of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that would be fair. Um, think, for example, about um, when we were growing up, there was all this talk about moral relativism and how right. moral relativism was a big deal. And I, and I always had to imagine myself making arguments to prove to someone that there was such a thing as right and wrong. Well, that's just not the case anymore. Um, right. Everyone believes in right and wrong. Our problem is that we disagree about what it is. Yeah, uh, we that's don't, right. We don't know how to establish what it is, right? Well, the, the, the cinema has played an important role in rehabilitating that moral imagination and recreating in us the sense that there is right and wrong. Because we see these situations on screen in which something horrible is happening, and in that moment, we know that what's being done is wrong and we long for justice for the characters in that moment. And the, the, power of can, the power that these movies have to convince us of these fundamental philosophical truths has not, it has something to do with the story itself, with what's being told and how well it's being told, but it's got a lot to do also with the fact that we're giving ourselves over so completely into that world that we allow ourselves to inhabit possibilities that go beyond our daily experience. Right, right. Some of the uh, the the argument from 
you know, equally thoughtful Christian people. I'm not talking about just the kind of empty fundamentalism that just says, you know, going to the movies is bad, but some some thoughtful criticism of something like the Marvel Universe or Harry Potter or Star Wars or some of these big blockbuster series films or whatever can be something like this. We do need an antidote to materialism, but they're not telling the right story. Mm-hmm. They're not giving us enough transcendence or whatever it is. What would be your response to that? I would say that to move a person from Athens to Jerusalem is going to take more than a couple of steps. Huh. It's a bit of a long road, right? And when, when I meet someone and we're having a meaningful conversation, my goal is not to make them who I am uh, in, in that conversation. My goal is not to move, say, for example, an atheist into being a devout Christian in the space of a two-hour conversation. Um, I don't even have a sense that, well, in two hours, this person ought to be able to take five steps down that road. My goal is quite simply this. At, at best, to move them any amount in that direction in the time that we have together and at worst to make sure I don't push them further in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. If I can't help them to see the um, compelling character of the Christian faith in the time that we have together, I hope I at least don't make it harder for the next Christian to do so. That being said, looking historically at how the church has responded to these, there have been a variety of responses to secular culture. Famously, Tertullian in the third century felt that Christians really needed to pull back from all of the secular spectacles, we couldn't go to the chariot races and we couldn't go to the theater and these sorts of things. Right. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Right. Yep. Exactly. His argument is that when you go to those places, those are forms of worshiping other gods. Mm -hmm. The theater is devoted to particular gods. The Circus Maximus has these two poles where different idols are on each side of the pole. And so for the Christian to go to these places, he argues, would be for the Christian to participate in false worship. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I don't hear anyone making that argument now. And so that means that Tertullian doesn't actually count in this conversation in the same way. Uh-huh. If you look at the actual practice of the church, um, even through Tertullian's time, there was a much more moderate approach to it, which was this. Uh, the world does a lot of things well and beautifully, and we can learn from that and we can draw from that. The, the church has always drawn from secular art in the production of sacred art. The early icons demonstrate this. But even beyond that, there's, a, there's an interesting passage in Genesis that does not get discussed enough, I think. Just after Cain has killed Abel and has been driven out and has been cursed, we get the, uh, the genealogy of Cain and his descendants. And it's a very interesting genealogy because it'll mention this person who was the first person to work with metal, this person who was the father of all those who played the lute, this person. And what you're seeing is all of the arts in the broad sense, both the fine arts and the mechanical arts, are being described in those early chapters of Genesis as being created not by the line of the promised child, but rather by the cursed child, Cain. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very powerful witness to the fact that when the point of the passage is to indicate the curse that lies on Cain's line, it begins with Cain being driven out and it ends with one of his descendants saying, I've killed a man in anger, I'm going to be cursed even more than Cain was that in the midst of that, there's this celebration of the creative activity that they were capable of and what mm-hmm. they bequeathed. Really, the, the production of culture in fulfillment of the original mandate for humans to fill the earth and to make beautiful things out of it. So I, I, I myself do not go down that culture wars pathway. I really think it's important to recognize that beauty is transformative and powerful wherever it's found. Beauty absent truth is always dangerous, but beauty can never be completely apart from truth. 
Right. And so I think that if you've got a Harry Potter and you've got a Star Wars and you've got a Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, that's, that's, that's going to create certain obstacles for evangelism, yes, but it's also going to create certain opportunities. And I want to make sure that we evaluate both the obstacles and the opportunities so that we take advantage of the opportunities and are armed ahead of time against the obstacles. Like that's so, so well said. I kind of want to three cheers that. So then let's say we're going, we're taking the family tomorrow. I'm taking my, my entire family to go see Spider-Man. Yep. So how do we watch those movies? Like, do we watch the, do we have to have like our thinking caps on and be trying to find all these classical illusions and how it's like this? And if it's an allegory of the gospel, blah, blah, blah. Or on the other hand, are we just kind of mindlessly sitting there consuming popcorn and being entertained and saying it's fine because we're Christians. So how do we go into some of these big films that are these great stories? How do we engage them? You know what, what I find to be universally true with movies like this, when they're good, and of course they're not always, but when they're good and the movie's over, especially if you've gone with a group of people, what's the first thing that happens? You talk about it. What do you, you think? It, yeah. Right. Oh, I love this part where this happened. Man, I really was surprised. Wasn't this neat? What's going on there? Well, I think we're showing that what we do when we enjoy a story as a popcorn muncher is we we consume it in such a way that it becomes one of the things we want to talk about and think about. Mm-hmm. And so I think the natural response of enjoyment to a movie includes within it reflection upon what it means and how they achieved what they achieved and whatnot. Um, so I would, I would say that nothing more is required in one sense than to do a little bit more of what you already want to do, which is to allow yourself to enjoy the movie to such an extent that you wish to talk about it afterwards and describe what you liked and what you didn't like and why. Hmm. Um, but it, it, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. There are always, I think you've always got to know why you're doing something. Some movies I go to in order to analyze them and interact with the complex message. And in fact, some movies are created for just that purpose. They don't want me to sit there and just munch popcorn. They want me to actually be thinking uh, very deep thoughts as I watch them and for quite some time afterwards. And they, they want to do social work of changing how I think. Other movies uh, I go to primarily because I want to relax. I want to get a break, get, get out of my head a little bit, get rid of some stress, see something fun and entertaining, maybe watch some stuff blow up. Um, and those movies typically are made for that purpose, right? There was no, Men in Black International had no pretensions to dealing with deep, troubling issues. They wanted to provide an entertaining experience. Fair enough. But on the other hand, there's this. Movies always do cultural work. Mm-hmm. We come out of stories that move us, whether they move us in really deep, profound ways or in ways that are not profound intellectually but are profound emotionally. If they move us at all, they do something to us. They change us. And so movies are, the movie theater is a place where our culture is being um, created, is a place where our culture is being transmitted, and therefore it's a place that we can go to to learn about and understand our culture better. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that Christians should be doing in movies is looking at them both in terms of what kind of person made this and what kind of people are they trying to make with it? Right. That is to say, what does it reveal about who we are and what, what, what is its aspirational hopes in, trying, in terms of trying to shape who we'll be in the future? Um, but also to look at them and say, so as I go about the project of being an ambassador for the gospel in this culture, a project which requires me to understand the culture 
better than the culture understands itself, precisely because I have access to explanatory resources about the culture the culture lacks. I know true things that the culture denies to be true, and therefore I can explain things better. How does this movie equip me going into conversations with members of that culture going forward to talk about things that really matter? Right. Right. I think that's really important. One of the, you're, you're a parent. How many kids do you have, Junius? Two. Two kids. And how old are they? My eldest is almost three and my son is almost one. Okay. So you, you've got to be so excited in the next couple of years to be having these conversations. Oh, I can't wait. There's so many things I want to show them. (laughs) Yes. So my kids are 13 and 10 and I have found over the years, and this is true with my friends and, um, uh, and people I work with is one of the dangers of of this kind of evaluative watching of, of movies is to moralize, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so here's the moral of the story. I did this the other day. I was watching with Shakespeare, of all things. We were watching the Much Ado About Nothing uh, with the Kenneth Branagh version. My kids love that movie. We were watching it. And everything in me wanted to say to my 10-year-old daughter, because we've just you know been starting to have these conversations, mm-hmm. I just wanted to say to her, don't you want to be so virtuous just like Hero? Right, (laughs) and I'm like forcing it to stay in my mouth because I know that I should not moralize, and yet there it is in the story, and I just want him to see it. Right, I want him to get it. Yeah, and and a lot of these these uh, these movies that we watch, really, as you pointed out, we're not talking about moral relativism anymore. That ship has sailed. Now everybody has a cause. So, and, and we as, as Christians watching these movies, we either want to say, look at this great cause, or we want to say, that's not the right cause, mm-hmm. right? So how do we avoid doing that internally? And then in these, conversa- in these conversations, especially say with our, our younger, you know, our kids or students or whoever. I think this is where the, the folks that you mentioned earlier who are warning us against seeing some of these movies, or at the very least warning us to be careful how we see these movies need to be given their space. Um, this is where they're onto something, right? It doesn't matter how much I loved Endgame. And believe me, I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was so good. Um, so did I. I thought it was great. Really fantastic movie. They did a good, an amazing job of bringing together an enterprise that is of a size that we've never seen before. Um, this is the largest body of movies in a single storyline we've ever seen. And they, and they brought it together beautifully, tied it up very well. But here's the trick. Um, at the end of the day, the vision guiding this movie is not a Christian vision. Right. And I need to know that whatever truths are presented in that movie are going to be presented in a way that is at best very complicated. Mm-hmm. I can't just say, well, this is the way things went and that was right. Or this was the way things went and that was wrong. There's, there's a, there's, it's going to be a lot grayer than that. Um, and there's gonna take, it's going to take discernment to figure out what's right and what's exciting and what's maybe dangerous and what's should we be a little bit cautious about. Um, and so avoiding jumping on board the causes of the movies or in, avoiding importing our political causes into the movies or extracting our political causes out of the movies, a lot of the task there is just exactly the same task that Christians always need to be wary of, which is the task of falling into false dichotomies. Hmm. Of thinking it's got to be this or that. Are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you... you know, it's the world is a great deal more complicated than that. Not because there isn't right and wrong, but because in a world that is fallen by sin that we are the authors of. Mm-hmm. And as we're discussing the cultural products of sinful humans in a sinful world who have a very complicated relationship to truth, 
Um, not only do we not always know the truth, we also are, even those of us who are striving after the truth, we suppress the truths in ourselves in order to give space for our sin. Um, it means that everything we find down here is mixed. Nothing is pure, right? Um, I like to think of it this way. Because we ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, it seems obvious to us that you can't understand good without evil. Right. But that's actually silly. It's only right. obvious to us because we have befuddled our knowledge of the good so that it's always mixed with the evil. Mm-hmm. I think this is what Paul was talking about when he says, the good that I would do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, that's what I do do. There's a war in his members. Even when I'm acting virtuously, even when I'm doing the right thing, and even when I'm doing the right thing for the right reason, I find that I'm also doing it for the wrong reason. I'm also hoping that someone will notice and I'll get some credit for it or something like that. Um, well, how much more complicated is that going to be when you've got a lot of voices going into the product as you do in a movie? And how much more complicated would that be when there is not a clear understanding of gospel truth that underlies that? So I think that when we watch these things, just as when we read great literature, uh, we have to be reading in a way that matches the moral complexity that's going to necessarily adhere in those stories. It's never just, this is right, and this is wrong, hero is right, and Claudio is wrong. It's always a more complicated story than that. Um, and so then as parents, you know, what we're looking out for in our children is we want to know who are they identifying with? Mm-hmm. Who in the story becomes their hero? Because for me, it wasn't always the hero of the piece that I most identified with. Sometimes I identified with the villain. And I think that's something that a parent wants to be aware of and wants to look out for. And that controls the types of conversations about morality that you would have over that piece. Well, I love what you're saying because what you're saying is to is that then the film, the story, whatever it is, whether it's literature or blockbuster movie, becomes a conduit or a pathway to relationship. Yeah. Not just a cautionary or moral kind of tale to instruct. That's right. Why, why are we going to the Spider-Man this weekend rather mm-hmm. than three or four weekends down the road? At some level, it's because we can't wait. We want to see it. Right. But at another level, for me at least, and I suspect also for you, I want to be there with an opening weekend crowd. Yep. I want to be there with the kind of people who will clap when it's over. Yep. Right. People it's, who care because it's exactly, relational. Yeah. Exactly. The, the going to the movies is a very social thing still. And that's one of the things that's very powerful to me. It's not just sitting in the dark and seeing that big screen. It's also sitting in the dark with others and seeing that big screen. Mm, that's great. All right. Well, I promised I would ask you this question before we close. So... Um, at, at Forma, we have this very, I would say probably an excessive obsession with rankings. (laughs) For example, we were all just at a literary retreat a few weeks ago, our editorial team minus a few, uh, and we were ranking everything from, you know, if you had to save X amount of novels from C.S. Lewis's literary canon and the rest are lost to time, which would it be? And we're whittling it down, you know, and so, and it's taking hours and we're having a great time. We even did a ranking of uh, Southern local sodas that we bought at the gas station, (laughs) sat around and ranked them in order, all of us. So we do have this uh, question that we ask people, um, which is, what is your Mount Rushmore? What are your four iconic, you know, if I could save these four, we're not talking favorites, but iconic examples, if I could save these four and see the rest fall into the wasteland. Who is your, or not who, but what is your Mount Rushmore of blockbuster film series? You can have the whole series. 
Well, that's that's generous. Uh, you yeah, know, it's quite possible you all have serious problems, and you should probably seek help. Oh <laughs> no, we don't need help. We need more conversations with people like you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I would absolutely have the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, okay. in the in his pride of place in that constellation. That has been such the a George Washington. <laughs> well, and plus you get twenty two movies, twenty three movies now for the price of one. I mean, that's just <laughs> money as well, and so that that'll help future generations. Star Wars has got to go in there, and okay. I'm going to offend a lot of people and say every Star Wars has to go in there. I got um, it. That's a bold statement. I like it. It is. And the reason is this, this is, you know, I've been a Star Wars fan from the moment I've been a movie fan because the first movie I ever saw in the theater was Empire Strikes Back. Um, I was, I was three years old and Mm -hmm. that crawl started and that music came up and my soul leapt from my body. And for the next (laughs) hour and a half, I was awash in this thing. And I came out of that theater knowing the world was a magical place and I've never forgotten that it is. Um, as a result of that, you know, people talk about, oh, this, I wish they hadn't done this, I wish they hadn't done that, and blah, 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 Jar Jar is the worst character in the history of the movie, he is. Um, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is, you know, you, you make Star Wars movies and I'm there. You give me more time to spend in that universe that I love and I'm on board. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that the hardcore fans tend to forget and all of their theories and their disappointment that the movie doesn't do what they would have done with it is that at the end of the day, any time spent in a galaxy far, far away is time well spent. Mm-hmm. So all of Star Wars makes it in. Um, now it gets quite a bit tricky. I get two more franchises, huh? Yeah. Franchise. Okay, I'm going to take Die Hard. Okay. Wow. I'm so glad you went with an action one and not a fantasy. Okay, explain yeah. that. Well, first of all, the first Die Hard is, and I, I, wish, I wish this to be settled for all time, the first Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Amen. I totally agree with that, actually. In fact, one of my students once said, and I thought this was the well said, for her, it's not Christmas until she sees Hans Gruber falling off the Nakatomi Tower. <laughs> yeah, that's, that really captures the holiday spirit just right. Um, no, they were, they were so important. You know, so, and just as Star Wars is seminal to modern science fiction, Die Hard is seminal to modern action movies. Mm-hmm. And I was just noticing this the other day. I was re-watching, what were we watching? Um, with a friend of mine, I was showing her for the first time some action movie. I can't think what it was and what it is right now. But as we were watching it, I thought, have you seen Die Hard? She said, no. And I said, well, you've got to see Die Hard. Well, isn't it just like this? No, this is just like that. Everything happening in this movie is happening this way because of how Die Hard happens. Um, and so that's, that's got to go on my, on my mountain. I got one more, huh? Mm-hmm. <sighs> You're killing me, Smalls. I know, right? Four is hard. Three is easier and five is too much. I could stop if I had three, right? Yeah. Yep. Clearly, you've not learned the Monty Python lesson about the Holy Hand Grenade. <laughs> you know, I think, I think I'm going to take Harry Potter. Okay. And I'll Good tell you why. It's, yeah. it's not because they're the greatest movies ever made. Um, they are very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but thinking about franchises and about sustaining an, uh, a feel and a narrative and an emotional unity across a franchise, that was all done very, very well in the movies. And in fact, the 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 final movies, the last two movies of that franchise, I think paid off the debts that had been set up earlier better than the book did. Um, because I think that there was a lot that went wrong that we didn't talk about. But yeah, they, they, have, a, they, they have that sense. For me, Harry Potter would do the job for my kids of reminding them that the world is a magical place. Mm-hmm. Um, magic is a very important part of the imagination. Uh, the imagination is a very important part of human life, one that's greatly undervalued these days. 
Um, and it gives them compelling, flawed heroes that they can journey with and they, they can connect to. Um, mm-hmm. Not just our big three, but all of the supporting cast around them who have such good moments in the final movies. So sure, I would put that there. I love that. I think that's great. So just a quick word then. I, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but I want to. Um, can you comment just briefly on making books into film? Because I agree with you about Harry Potter. I think it's, I think they're not perfect, but they give a visual landscape for kind of the internal geography of our minds Mm -hmm. that connect to the books. I think beautifully there, they bridge over to the books so that it creates a holistic universe, maybe better than any other series that's been made Mm -hmm. into, into film. And so mm-hmm. I would put it on there, not because they're perfectly, they perfectly express what the books do, but because they provide something the books don't and yeah. make it more holistic. And I think it's, I think they're wonderful. I think that's right. And this is something that I, I'm really passionate about because I've spent too many hours of my life angry about mm-hmm. love adapted in the film. And I, and I finally learned something that has helped me enormously and has enabled me not only to stop feeling that way, going forward, but to go back and revisit some things that made me very angry and, and appreciate them. Um, and, and among them, the first films that needed to be saved from my ire were the Lord of the Rings films. Huh. I really hated Fellowship when I first saw it because mm-hmm. of the ways they changed the various characters. Um, there was a general flattening of heroism. Right? Gimli becomes comic relief and no longer this heroic um, great dwarf. But what I, what I learned uh, was was this. And I think this lines up with how the folks making these movies think about them. The movie is not a version of the book. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. The movie is a version of the story of which the book is a version. Right. And if I, if I can think that, then I don't have to judge the movie by its faithfulness to the book. I can judge the movie. The movie has a path then to getting it right, as it were, that doesn't coincide with slavish faithfulness to the, to the letter of the text. Right. Right, you can get you can get Lord of the Rings right without doing what the books do, because the books are a witness to a certain atmosphere and air and character, and the movie can present that in a way that is more native to its format. Right, I think I think if folks could think that way it would it would free them up to have a to enjoy a lot of things that are very good even if not as good as the book. Right, I think that's true. Well, and and Rowling says that she said that when they were making the Harry Potter books into film, she said, I understand you're going to have to change a lot about my story in order to make a good movie because a movie Mm -hmm. is different from a book. Just be faithful to the characters. Make sure they do not lose who they are, which is your complaint about the Lord of the Rings film, which I think is completely fair. And -hmm. I think they did fail in that way. Um, But they were still pretty good movies, they're still a great deal of fun and they're very yeah. powerful and they do get Middle Earth right. They may not get Gimli right. They may not get Frodo right, but they're getting the larger strokes right. Right, right. And But but they wouldn't make it onto Mount Rushmore because they didn't get the characters right, which are really in all stories kind of the heart of of the world. Yeah. It's got to and be the characters. It matters, it matters to me how you get them wrong too, right? And in, the, in this instance, they got them wrong by making them less heroic, I believe, in an effort to make them feel easier to relate to. Yeah. Um, but what I need is not someone I can relate to. I need someone I can aspire to. Right. Well, and that's what Lord of the Rings is all about. It was a modern, it was a failure of modernity to yes. understand the heart of these, of this, of these stories. I think that's right. Yeah. 
Uh, well, Junius, thank you so much. That just feels like the beginning of a conversation. <laughs> so um, hopefully we'll have you on again. You could talk about Bonaventure or something else. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Hattie. Yep. And to our Formon audience, thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.